27 days ago, I turned to my wife Cheryl and I said, Honey, it's the 23rd day of the Omer. And she looked at me like some of you are right now. (laughs) About 10 days ago, I said, Honey, it's the 40th day of the Omer. And she again looked at me strangely. About seven days ago, I, I said, Cheryl, I texted her. Cheryl, it's the, it's the 43rd day of the Omer. And she said, what are you talking about? I did this several times in the last 50 days. You see, each day, beginning with the day following Passover, in, in the Passover week, is called on the Hebrew calendar a day of the Omer. There's the first day of the Omer and the second day of the Omer and the third day of the Omer. And it continues on for 49 days until the 50th day, which is today. And today is a holiday in Israel. It's a a day that was prescribed 3,500 years ago at Mount Sinai to be remembered, to be commemorated annually by the Jewish people, and it has been. Exodus 34, verse 22, uh, is where God laid that into the Torah law for the Jewish people to commemorate and remember. Now, Jews today will tell you that the celebration that that they hold today, that they remember, is all about the giving of the law. Now, that's why God prescribed this. Now, now no one knows what exact day God gave the law, or when that exactly happened. 3,500 years ago, we know, but, but what was the day? What was the precise day? And, and was it on this 50th day after, after uh, the Passover? Um, the Jews will tell you so. That's become part of the tradition. We can't know that for sure. But we do know this, that 2,800 years ago, A prophet came along and spoke a prophecy that would forever connect today to the mystery of the church. And then 2,000 years ago, on this day, that remarkable prophecy began to be fulfilled. In Hebrew, it's called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. In Greek, Pentecost. Today is the day of Pentecost. Today is the day of the what we would call the founding of the church. This is when it kicked off. This is when it truly began. This was that time. Well, let me read it to you. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now Peter explained this down in verse 16 of Acts chapter 2, quoting from the prophet Joel, a prophecy spoken, again, 2,800 years ago, so 800 years before this fulfillment began. Peter said, this is what was spoken of through Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now twice in this most heavenly letter, that we're studying in Ephesians, and we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6 if you want to turn in your Bibles there. Twice in this letter so far, Paul reminds us that we were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. And sealed again for the day of redemption 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Twice he mentions the fact that we were sealed. Sealed as in, oh, I don't know, perhaps a marriage vow. There is a vow that takes place, a vow that God made, a covenant He made that He would pour forth of His Spirit. And as it began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, it continues to be fulfilled even today as He continues to pour forth of His Spirit on His people, on the church. And it's a marvelous gift. And as I sat thinking about this day approaching, you know, it was the 47th day of the Omer, and then the 48th, and then the 49th, and then as today came, I was struck by the reality that of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and Paul has listed many, that this is perhaps the most glorious. What the Holy Spirit seals us for, that is our future promise which is a heavenly intimacy with Jesus. Of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, we have the portrayal of the picture-perfect marriage. I'll read it to you again. We read it on Sunday in chapter 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and The church. Jesus and the church. The bride and the groom. The bride and the lamb. The marriage feast of the lamb promised. Revelation 19 verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. But wait. On that day. At that time. The marriage of the lamb. The honeymoon ain't over yet. In fact it's just getting started. Jesus is not interested in a fairy tale wedding followed by a difficult marriage. Followed by years of struggle. Followed by fights and dissension and then ultimately division. No, what Jesus is interested in goes far beyond the marriage feast of the Lamb. In fact, it is so eternally significant. Listen to this, Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There is coming an eternal honeymoon and our location will be in the new Jerusalem why does the new Jerusalem look like a bride and the church is called a bride I believe it's because new Jerusalem is the zip code of the church it is the dwelling place of the people of God and God will be with us and we will be his people and he will be our God And and, and Paul covers that, and we looked at it briefly on Sunday. And I say briefly because there's not enough time to really pour over and consider the wonder of what this means spiritually. The reality of this blessing, of this heavenly truth. 
And, and I'm drawn back to the heavenly truths. You know, we've been in the walk of the made worthy now for, for a few weeks, and we've been looking at the practical aspects of Paul's letter to Ephesus. The first three chapters were the heights of the heavenlies, and it was spiritual, and, and all of this doctrine and theology, and it's marvelous, and, and boy, it's just expanding to the mind and enlightening to the spirit. And then we get into chapter 4, and it's so practical. How we walk, what we do, what does that look like? And then suddenly we just get hit in the middle of all this practicality with this absolutely stunning picture of the perfect marriage. Paul lays that out by the Spirit. But it is practical, as well as spiritual. As much as the letter is heavenly, the letter is Practical right here on earth. And so Paul, with all this in mind, with that wedding in mind, with the fact that we're the bride in mind, hold on to that thought, keep it with you tonight. Paul now picks back up on what we could call the spiritually practical. Because right on the tail end of saying, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And then Paul says, nevertheless, (laughs) each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Practical. You know what's sad about that verse? Is that some in our culture today would actually find it offensive. And yet if you think about the way we tick, and the Holy Spirit knows how we tick, knows how our hearts beat, knows what we desire, what we need, what we long for, With that kind of sensitivity, the Holy Spirit says, here's the deal, this is great, apply this to your marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Because that's what husbands and wives need. It doesn't mean the opposite isn't true. It doesn't mean that a woman shouldn't be respected in the marriage. Of course she should. And it doesn't mean that a man shouldn't be loved. Of course he should. But Colossians 3.19, Paul had said, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered or irritated or angry against them. Love them. Brothers, your wives need your love. There's a degree of tenderness that comes with that, of understanding, of, of compassion, of sweetness. And our wives need our love. Of course, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Sisters, he needs your respect. He needs to know that, that you respect him. And so with beautiful sensitivity and practicality, the Spirit says, Husbands, show your wives love. That's what she's looking for from you. Wives, show your husbands respect. That means everything to him. It's practical, it's beautiful, it's perfect. And by the way, this whole section, especially picking up about verse 18 in chapter 5 and running through verse 9 of chapter 6, very closely parallels what Paul told the church at Colossae. You can almost take the one and stamp it right onto the next with some interesting exam, uh, exceptions. Um, one of which is with Colossae, Paul focused heavily on slaves and their masters. That was the emphasis in, in this practical section in the letter to the church of Colossae. Of course, you know why Colossae was home to a master named Philemon and a runaway slave named Onesimus. And so that was the issue at hand there with the church at Colossae. So the emphasis fits the context. 
Another difference is that with Ephesus now, he devotes, as we looked at Sunday, 12 verses to the husband-wife relationship. 12 verses to marriage, the mystery of marriage. In Colossians, husbands get one verse and wives get one verse and that's it. But he expands the whole thing here to Ephesus. Why? Was Ephesus facing marital issues? No, as we've talked about, Ephesus was the conduit of this letter. That this larger mystery of marriage, that this beautiful picture of Christ and the church needed to be spoken to all the church. And Paul's intention, as we've seen in the letter, was for the letter to go to Ephesus and through Ephesus and out to all Asia. And so it would. And it's even reached our laps tonight. The picture of marriage. This beautiful, profound picture. And all of this, as we look at these practical things, all of this, it lays in with that very specific subjection, one to another, in the fear of Christ. So that undergirds everything. And that subjection now continues in chapter 6 with the rest of the family. He's dealt with husbands and wives, and now he goes on to children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Some of you junior parents of junior hires are thinking, can we get the kids in here right now for this? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Now, interesting, Paul expands his teaching here over Colossae. He didn't say this much in Colossians. He just said, you know, children obey your parents, but he doesn't go into why. Here, Paul actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16. It's also similar to Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, where the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, is given. But it is so that you might live long on the earth, and the honoring of father and mother is a big deal to God. In fact, it's such a big deal that that Jesus himself censured the Pharisees on this very issue. Listen to this. I'll read it to you. Matthew 15, verse 3. Tells us, he answered and he said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say... Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. In another place that's called Korban. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now I chose that passage for a reason. Because we don't need to call the junior hires in here to talk about honoring father and mother. No, we need to do it. Because Jesus in dealing with the Pharisees is dealing with adults. And he's saying you are dishonoring your fathers, your mothers. And you're doing it by saying anything that I would have that I could give to you and help you in your later years that I could support you with. Oh, I can't do that. It's korban. It's given to God. Now, the Pharisees could still use it for themselves. The whole thing was a sham. And Jesus said, you are dishonoring. And so, what does he say? He quotes Isaiah saying, and this people is far from me. I want to give you something very practical that you can do beginning right now to draw near to God. Honor your father and or your mother. Honor your parents. 
honor my parents? My parents aren't even believers. Or my parents were horrible. Or my parents were clueless. Doesn't matter. I don't hear any of those qualifications given in the command to honor your father and your mother. We're just told to honor them. Period. Regardless of their treatment, their behavior, their attitudes, or even their faith. Honor your father and mother. Want to draw near to God? You can start right there. Why is that? Well, it's where we learn in the first place. And it's where we practice the honor of God, our Father. I begin by honoring my parents. As a small child growing up in my house, learning to respect my dad. Learning his authority and his position over me. Until one day I would be old enough, you know, to be out on my own. And yet still, to this day, I honor my dad. I honor my mom. But it's only lately that I've begun to understand, wow, that was where I learned how to honor God. And now, that's where I continue to practice the honor of God. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32 says, You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. Why are they connected? Because as we honor our elders, as we honor those in authority or position or even experience over us, we continue to practice honoring God Himself. Well, that's not to put our parents or elders on a plane with God, but it's the whole practice of honoring of looking up to and showing great respect. And note that Paul says, back in Ephesians 6, he says, so that it will be well with you, he quotes Deuteronomy, and that you may live long on the earth. It's the command with the promise. Honor your parents and you're going to live long. Why? Because they won't kill you. (laughs) No. Long life was the promise of God to the person who honored his or her parents. Long life. Does that always work? Have you ever known anybody who died young but loved the Lord and honored their parents? I've seen this happen. I think about one example. What about Cassie Bernal, the the girl at Columbine, who when asked, do you believe in God, said yes, and she was shot and killed. She was 17 years old. Did she not honor her parents? She must not have honored her parents. She didn't live long on the earth. I think we missed something. In fact... I think what happens is that we encapsulize life into our experience from birth to death here and now. But it is much bigger than that. Oh, it's, it's much more than that. Some people would say, well, I don't want to live long on the earth anyway. Are you kidding me? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I want to get out of here. So I don't want to live long, so I'm not going to honor my parents. I mean, that's silliness, of course. But this whole idea of living long on the earth, are we limiting our lives to right now? What do you mean, Rick? How'd you like to live long on the earth in the millennial kingdom? Let me tell you something. If you want to rule and reign with Jesus then, now we begin to learn how to honor those in authority over us. By honoring mother and father, by honoring those around us, by honoring our elders and looking up to them and showing that respect, we are practicing being in the government of Jesus for a thousand years as we rule and reign with Him on the earth. Long life, there it is. Want to rule and reign with Jesus? Honor mom and dad. Now, also to fathers. 
Paul continues. He appends his previous Colossian exhortation, uh, gives a little bit more with the fathers. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Discipline. It's chastening. It's nurture. It's the word paideia. Instruction is admonition. It's nuthasia. And Hebrews chapter 12 explains this, expresses this kind of upbringing beautifully. Turn over there just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 verse 5. Now quoting from Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 and 12, the Hebrew writer says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline, paideia, nurture, chastening. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Nurture and admonition. Discipline and instruction. Paul adds that and says, fathers, and I would say mothers as well. This is how we are to raise our children. With both the instruction of the Lord and the discipline of the Lord. You might put it this way. Raise raise them up God's way and... Raise them up to know God's ways. Raise them the way God would raise us, the way He disciplines, the way He nurtures and chastens us. But raise them up to know the ways of the Lord as well. And with both of these things, you can go back to Ephesians 6. I'm moving quickly and there's a reason for it. In both of these things, in honoring our parents and in disciplining children, listen. In honoring our parents, we honor God. In disciplining our children, we imitate God. Verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them. And give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And this section is almost word for word what we studied in Paul's letter to Colossae. The Colossian admonition. We also looked closely at Philemon, that letter to the master of Onesimus, the runaway slave. And again, all of this centers on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I'm not going to say anything more about slaves and masters tonight. I wanted to get on to the rest. So let's do that. We come now to the last section of this letter to the church and through the church at Ephesus. The final section, what I have called the fight of the faithful. 
heads up. In fact, attend hut. This is not the fight some people think it is. And as a matter of fact, we're not the army that anyone would expect. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. When Paul said, fight the good fight of faith to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12. And when he said, I have fought the good fight, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he wasn't talking fisticuffs. He wasn't talking about arguing and protesting and marching. And so much of what Christians today will think of when we say, fight the good fight. we got to fight the fight. How do you fight the fight? What does that look like? Well, Paul already told the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We have got to get out of the fleshly mindset, the earthly mindset, when it comes to fighting the battle that we're called to fight. Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Paul hones in here, focuses heavily now on the spiritual battle. This spiritual battle is fought with spiritual armaments, spiritual gear, spiritual weaponry. It is not the stuff of the flesh. Look at it. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Stand firm, he says. The word is histomai. It means to be fixed, to be established. Stand firm, Paul writes. Stand firm. He says it three times. Which is interesting because the number three is the number of resurrection in the Scriptures. Stand up. Stand firm. Stand strong. Now I want you to notice three things here about this firm and faithful fight. Go back to verse 10. He begins with finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Number one, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Not in yourself. Be strong in the Lord. Israel had a priestly proclamation. This was a command of God actually given when Israel was going to go out to war. The priest was to be called to come out and and as a prayer over the people of God, listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see the horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. 
For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. Listen. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Be strong in the Lord. If we have learned anything from Israel in their march through the wilderness, it was to be strong in the Lord. If we learned anything from the Jewish people and they're taking the land, it was to be strong in the Lord. Anything through the kings and their, their successes and their many failures, it was to be strong in the Lord. Because we can't work ourselves into a strong enough position. None of us can do it. We can't study hard enough. We can't pray long enough. We can't worship sincerely enough. We can't serve tirelessly enough or observe religiously enough to be strong for the spiritual battle. We will fall. And yet we try to gear up ourselves and to be strong in ourselves. No, to develop the kind of strength needed for spiritual warfare, we must be strong in the Lord. All these other things that I mentioned will help. Bible study, absolutely. Learning how to wield the sword will help. And, and praying, specifically in the Spirit, is part of the command here. And we'll, we'll get to a lot of that on Sunday, actually. And doing these things, serving the Lord, subjecting yourself in the fellowship, you know, worshiping daily, even observing religious uh, observances, baptism, communion, those things that we're called to do, those can all be helpful. But listen, doing those things in and of themselves... The strength is the Lord's. It's not how many verses I've memorized. Don't misunderstand me. Verse memorization is fantastic. But, you know, it's the difference. Verse memorization is like learning how to use a sword while ignoring your commander. You might be the best swordsman in the army, but if you're not paying attention to the general, you're going to be in trouble. Be strong in the Lord. My strength is in His might. I love the description given to David. David was living among the outcasts of Israel in a place called Ziklag. Ziklag, out in the Negev, the the deserts of Israel. Living out close to Philistine territory and and all the the riffraff, you might say, the discontented and the indebted and and the distressed of Israel, they all came out and lived with David. Kind of moved in and set up camp together. So David's out there and he takes several of his men and they're dealing with an issue with the Philistines. And while they're doing that, the Amalekites, they come rushing in and they begin to attack the camp and they burn down the camp and they take all the women and children and spoils and they make off with it. David and his men come back to Ziklag and they discover this loss. And as they see all these things, and the story's in 1 Samuel chapter 30. The men with David there begin to get really upset. I mean, wouldn't you? Your wife is gone. Your children are kidnapped. The Amalekites have made off with everything that you have. And they're getting angry and they're starting to shout. And and they're looking at David and they're starting to blame him. And the Bible says some were getting ready to stone David. And you know what the Scriptures say? 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. I love that verse. David strengthened himself in the Lord. He didn't stand up and say, How long have I been your leader? Look at all the things I've done. I've worked so hard for this position. King of the desert rats. 
No. David strengthened himself in the Lord. Well, how did he do that? He called for Abiathar, the high priest. Abiathar comes in. He brings the ephod. David goes before the high priest, takes a prayer to the Lord. Should we chase after the Amalekites? Will we catch them? The Lord says, yeah, go get them. And they do. They wipe out the Amalekites. They rescue all of the wives and children. They bring back all of the spoils. And they bring it back to Ziklag. And David is victorious. Why? Because David strengthened himself in the Lord. And it is the best thing you can do, no matter what's going on in your life, but when you especially feel yourself in a heated battle situation, when you find yourself under attack, or when you feel like your strength is failing, don't try and up the ante of all the things that you can do. Stop and go to the Lord. The joy of the Lord, the Bible says, is our strength. He is my might. He is where my power comes from. He is the ability to continue when I don't have a shred or an ounce of strength left. My strength is in the Lord. My strength is in the Lord. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm, Paul says. Isaiah writes in Isaiah forty twenty eight. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. So be strong in the might of the Lord. Well, that sounds good, but again, how how do I go about that? Listen again to the powerful prayer that Paul had already prayed for the people. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, we might say standing firm in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Stand firm in the Lord. He is your strength. And our greatest courage, our greatest strength, our, even our stamina, it comes A number one from knowing the love of Christ Jesus. I know His love. I know He cares for me. I know His love in me and and through me. And the love of Christ keeps my eyes focused on the right person in the spiritual battle. Keeps me looking to Him and not to the flesh. So be strong in the Lord. Secondly, be sensitive to the satanic schemes. Verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now all the New Testament writers, every single one of them, to a man, and Jesus Himself recognized and warned against both the person and the procedures of Satan. Not some force we've talked about this many times, but I have to underscore this. Satan is just not a force. Not a semblance, not a personification of evil. Satan is a real person. Satan is truly evil. And Satan and his minions, his demons, are actual and are battling and are fighting. And they don't take a break. 
And even Jesus came along and said, you've got to pay attention not only to who He is, but to what He does, His procedures. Paul calls them schemes. The word scheme is methodea. That's where we get our word method. What's the methodology of Satan? Methodea, it also means artful cunning, uh, deceit, trickery, wiles. Bottom line, Satan's got a playbook. And you can, you can read it. You can see it. Look at history. Look at how he's behaved. See, Satan's playbook is thin. It's tedious. It's repetitive. And yet it continues to entrap and ensnare people. It's the same playbook that he has used from day one. He spins out the same scenarios. Such that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his schemes. We know he's up to stuff. We know he's prowling the earth like a roaring lion seeking to devour. We know how he acts, what he does. Paul's going to illuminate some of that for us in these verses. But we know he's a liar. He was a liar from the beginning. So we know he doesn't tell the truth. We know that he doesn't have power over you except what you give to him. We know he loves to work in the realm of terror. That's one of his favorite things. If he can frighten us, if he can shake us or rattle us, though he's done nothing of damage to us, if we can be frightened by him or fearful of him, he's winning. Oh, he won't win, but he gets the best of us when we are ignorant of his schemes and we are not to be ignorant of his schemes, of his methodea. F.F. Bruce says to be forewarned about the nature of his wiles is to be forearmed against them. So be alerted to, be sensitive to the satanic schemes. We refuse to ignore them. We refuse to be ignorant of them as much as we refuse to ignore the fact that Satan is actual and he is working against us. And when we know that, well then, Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Be sensitive to the schemes of the enemy. And number three, be spiritual in the struggle. Be strong in the Lord, sensitive to the satanic schemes, and be spiritual in the struggle. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. And the longer I live, the longer I study the Word of God, and the longer I'm aware of politics in America, I realize politics are the stuff of the flesh. Things I used to get upset about before that don't bother me at all anymore. Because the battle that we see going on in Washington, D.C. is a flesh battle. And that's why, and feel free to disagree with me on this or even be a little uncomfortable when I say this, but that's why Republicans will not win the day. And that's why Democrats will not win the day. Because the battle that they fight over power and control and authority in Washington is a battle of the flesh. And all fleshly battles will ultimately fail. It's why churches fail when they battle in the flesh when rather than looking at the spiritual realities around us and what's really going on in terms of the Lord Jesus and and His design for our future and for this earth, when we battle in the flesh, when we fight with fleshly weapons, when we go after one another in that way, we lose. Because... 
Satan works in the flesh. He loves the fleshly battles. He loves when we get stirred up in the flesh. But to fight spiritually, now you've got a completely different power. Verse 12 here, this, this statement he makes again about our struggle not being against flesh and blood. This is now the final reference to the Eperoniois in Ephesians, to the heavenlies. We've talked about this is a heavenly letter, and Paul makes several references to the heavenly places. He talks about at the very beginning the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And he's talking about, I mean, you can look at heaven from the perspective of different levels of heaven. I'm not going Mormon on you here. But the fact that God would be in the highest level of heaven, but the heavenly places where a lot of this battling takes place, this would be in the lowest level of the heavens. This is the level we talked about before where the prince of the power of the air resides. This is the atmosphere. This is planet earth. These are the heavenly places where he moves freely and seeks to devour and to destroy and to kill. In this level of the heavenlies. And Paul ties that here to say that's, that's where our battle is. That's what we're fighting. The Eperonios, the, the, the heavenly places in this location... We are fighting against the rulers, against the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness, again, in the heavenly places. This is our battlefield. We have two weapons. You realize this. This is Sunday's teaching, but I can't stop. Two weapons. We have prayer and the Word. Those are our weapons. Everything else is defensive, as we'll see. But those two things are our actual weapons with which we can fight. And what are the two things that Christians seem to have the most trouble with when it comes to church? Worship? No, we're fine with that. The Word and prayer. You see, the devil's schemes includes trying to get us to believe that the Word's not that important and prayer takes too much time. You need to be busy. You need to be about the work. You need to approach this from an earthly, fleshly perspective and... We lose. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle. We are dealing, Paul says, with unseen enemies, invisible foes, hidden adversaries. They're not obvious. In fact, what that tells us, it's not just, not just the fact that spiritually we don't see, as we would see with our eyeballs in the flesh, all that's going on around us. It's more than that. It's the fact that the adversary and his demonic horde rarely engage in open warfare. Most of the attacks of Satan are guerrilla attacks. They're terrorist tactics. You don't see ISIS flooding in. You see him send in a suicide bomber to terrorize people. That's how the, the enemy works. This is what Satan does. And these spiritual forces, specifically the spiritual forces he's talking about here, are all hostile. He mentions rulers and authorities. Note these. Rulers and authorities, that's the RK and the exousia. And we saw all of them back in Colossians 1, verse 16. They were described there. These rulers and authorities, they refer specifically to limited earthly and spiritual powers. There's only so much that they can do. And remember Colossians 2.15, Paul said, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, and that is at the cross. So these rulers and authorities that Paul mentions that are part of this battle have already been disarmed, which means they're not very effective. But they're there. 
And they're fighting. And they're part of the spiritual battle that continues to go on, that rages against the rulers and the powers. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Paul is saying here that our struggle is against the rulers and the powers, but they've already been disarmed, how can they be a threat? What's the big deal? Why even mention them? I mean, they're armless warriors. They can't do anything. They are only a threat to those who drop their swords and listen to the lies. They're only a threat to those who are unaware of the schemes of the devil. They're only a threat in as much as they can deceive us into thinking they are more powerful than they really are. That's the rulers and the authorities. He goes on and he says, how about this? The world forces of this darkness. And this is an interesting word. It's used only here in the entire New Testament. And it's cosmocrator. That's not Cosmo Kramer. It's cosmocrator. Cosmo Kramer from... Seinfeld. Are we, are we past that generation now that's no longer a thing? Okay. Cosmocrator is the word in the Greek. And it was, it was a word that they used literally for the planets. See, in, in Greek mythology, they looked at the planets as gods themselves, as entities. And so the planets were the cosmocrator, the, the forces of darkness. And it's a good use of the word that Paul pulls out here because we might see them as locationally assigned Spirits. Cosmocrator are those who have a region that they're given. Uh, Daniel chapter 10 tells us about the prince of Persia. That'd be a good example of, of a cosmocrator. Or perhaps the moon god, Allah. Allah of Islam. Some of you are aware of this, that Allah was a tribal god, a god with a little g. He was the moon god of the tribe of Muhammad until Muhammad decided to make him the only god. And so even that would be a picture of this cosmic creator, this idea. And I would state to you very clearly that Allah is a demon. I'm not among those who say Allah doesn't exist. I believe He does. He's a demon. A powerful demon who has power over an entire religious uh, organization even here on the planet. And we see how He functions. Rick, I think you're making a little stretch there. Gang, this is spiritual warfare. And what some worship as this God named Allah, and what others, what Christians sometimes even foolishly think, well, Allah, Jehovah, uh, God, they're, they're all the same God. It's all just different names for the same God. And I've said before, okay, then Baal is just another name for God too. Asherah is just another name for God in the feminine. If, if they're all the same... They're all just names for the one true God. Allah is not a name for God. Allah is a name of a demonic entity. A cosmocrator. A world force of this darkness. Thirdly, he, he mentions the spiritual forces of wickedness. And that's descriptive. When he says spiritual forces of wickedness, the reality is that only spiritual resources will prevail against them. You can't fight spiritual with the fleshly. It's not strong enough. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. And we do battle with all these spiritual rulers and powers and forces. And we do so by standing firm on two very basic biblical truths. We've already seen them, but let me give them to you more specifically. Number one, we stand firm with kingdom footing. 
kingdom footing. Colossians 1.13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Kingdom footing. I am a child of the King. I am a citizen of the coming millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom beyond. You cannot take that away from me. Hebrews chapter 12 says, we have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have a kingdom footing. So we stand firm in that knowledge and that truth. When we say we've already won the war, we have. But we still have battles to fight. Battles that must be won. Why? I'll tell you in a minute. We stand firm with kingdom footing and we stand firm behind the king. I cannot state this strongly enough. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4. The Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. He does the fighting. We will see this brilliantly displayed. Actually, literally displayed before us when we return with Jesus. On that day, at the end of the tribulation, what we call Armageddon, He comes riding in on His white horse and the whole thing is over. We get to ride on white horses too. Revelation 19 describes that. It's a beautiful picture. We come riding in with Him, you know, and I'm going to be back there. I'm going to be swinging a sword, you know, yeah, woohoo! And we land, we get off our horses, and the battle's over. He did it. He does it. And it's the same thing right now in our lives today. He is the one who fights. We cry out to Him. We find our strength in Him. We trust in Him. We, okay, like little children, stand behind Dad. Get Him, Lord. And that's cool. That's what He wants. You just stand right there. I got this. All I want from you, the Lord might say to us here tonight, is to trust me. And I will make you strong. And I will secure the battle. And I will win the day. You trust in me. We stand firm with kingdom footing and we stand firm behind the king. By the way, in all this spiritual talk, isn't it interesting? I shared this with our staff today. It's interesting to me that Paul places this smack dab in the middle of practicality. I mean, he's talking about very specific issues of the flesh. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't, don't provoke your children to anger. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Folks, live together with peace. Subject yourselves one to another. I mean, this is all just practical, common life. And then all of a sudden, Paul starts talking about spiritual warfare. Why is that? It's because we fight the good fight in our families. It's because we engage in spiritual warfare for our co-workers, for our friends. We fight this fight in everyday life. We don't wait for the day when somehow there's going to be this magnificent spiritual battle, the, the likes of piercing the darkness. You know, for those of you who have read the book, we don't wait around for the attack of the demons. You see, the spiritual battle is going on right now in the common life. That phrase that rang around in my head when we were studying through Colossians, Christ in the common life. We're all living common life. One of the lies of the enemy, one of his deceits, 
is that we leave here and go back to common life. You know, tomorrow you're just going to be at work. Man, it was cool. We talked about spiritual warfare last night and, and duking it out with the devil. I like that stuff, but i got to go get the mail. And we slide into this common thinking that, well, yeah, it's fun. It's a buzz to talk about those spiritual things, but, but I've got common things to do. Listen, in your common life, everything that Paul's going to discuss with us and we'll talk about on Sunday, all of the armaments are to be used daily, moment by moment, in the common life. They are practical tools for spiritual warfare. And so don't miss that Paul drops this down right in the midst of all of this practicality, the fighting of the good fight. And so Paul, he, he sends out the call to the church, gear up, man, gear up. Don't come in the doors of a church and put on the gear. What use is that? I mean... The army doesn't come off the front line and gather around and then put on the gear. No, you gear up and go into the fray. You go into the battle. And Paul says in verse 13, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. In the evil day? When's the evil day? Today's the evil day. Well, I had a pretty good day, Rick. Thank you very much. Listen, the evil day, the evil day is any time the devil is at war. Guess when that is? It's every day. There is a, a more evil day coming for this earth. The Bible describes the day of Jacob's trouble, the time of tribulation. But you know what? It is the evil day any time you see the devil or his minions rising up in hostility. Any time... You know someone is being led by lies and deception. That is the evil day. Gear up. We gear up here to go fight there. Now, we're going to come back to verses 13 through 18 on Sunday because there's just too much there and I want to take some time and think through all of the armaments, all of the gear that we have been given to fight this spiritual fight. Let's skip down to verse 19. And Paul says, after all of this and focusing on these spiritual things, he says, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. I love that picture. That in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now listen. Because we haven't left all of this talk about spiritual warfare. In fact, this is where I believe it really lands. Paul asks for prayers for the same spiritual strength to which he has pointed us. I need prayers for this. For what? To fight the good fight. I need prayers to engage in the spiritual battle, the one that I've just described to you. Please pray for me. I need your prayers for this. The ambassador in chains knows from whom his strength would come. And so he says, pray that the Lord give me utterance. Pray that the Lord give me boldness. Note this, he doesn't seek release from prison. Wouldn't you? In sending this letter, I I hope you pay attention to all these doctrinal truths that I, Rick, have sent to you. And pray for me. I need out of here, man. 
I'm tired of being chained to the centurion. It's the first century. He doesn't shower. No, get me out. Pray for my release. I mean, who better than Paul to be released from prison if you're thinking in the flesh? If you're waging fleshly war, then Paul would be thinking, I've got to get out of here so I can get back out to the front lines so I can be in Corinth and be in Ephesus and be in Philippi and preach the Word so I can go back to the school of Tyrannus and teach and be useful to the Lord. Oh, pray for my release. And Paul doesn't ask that. He just says... Pray that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. To who, Paul? Now listen, he's not even talking about writing letters here. He's talking about having his mouth open to boldly proclaim Jesus. To who? To the stinky centurion that he's chained up with. To anyone who might venture a visit to the apostle. Well... What kind of influence can Paul have preaching to one centurion at a time? Well, we know the Bible tells us that he reached the entire Praetorian Guard. And that the ripple effect of that would affect all of Rome, would go out. What I'm saying is this. He did not seek release from prison. So often, my prayers, I confess, I am seeking release from one prisoner or another. I'm seeking release from my own spiritual struggles. I'm seeking to be moved from this position to that position. Oh God, get me out of this and put me into that where I can be more effective. And Paul says, make me effective right here. Don't release me. Give me utterance. Do you see the difference between fleshly and spiritual warfare? Fleshly warfare says, let me out so I can do the work. Spiritual warfare says, make your word right on my lips. Give me boldness to speak Jesus. What is the focus of your fight? Who is the concentration of your combat? Is it you? Is it me? Have we, after 2,000 years, made this whole thing about us? The already saved? Those who already have kingdom footing? Those who are already in the company of the king? Are we still praying prayers of release rather than prayers of utterance? Oh Lord, make me more holy. Oh Lord, make me more biblically literate. Oh Lord, help me overcome this addiction or that struggle or that sin. And this is what Christians today often think of when we think of spiritual warfare. I have to fight the warfare of my life and my struggles and my difficulties. Please get this. Please understand this. To me, this is the most important thing of the entire teaching. Spiritual warfare has real captives and has real casualties. And I'm not dismissing or denying personal skirmishes, but the battle must first and foremost be fought for the lost souls of humanity. That is spiritual warfare. Engaging with the enemy to rescue the captive. 
not engaging with the Lord to whine over our release. Oh, but my life is hard where I am. Yeah, and where you are may be the perfect place for you to reach the Praetorian Guard in your life. Think of what Paul did from prison. And don't think for a moment that he sat there in prison knowing he was going to impact 2,000 years of the church by writing to Ephesus and Colossae, by sending that little letter to Philemon and then the letter to Philippi that's coming up next. You think Paul sat there and thought, all right, now i got two years to really buckle down and write the New Testament. (laughs) Paul was in prison. But Paul had a perspective that we need, a perspective of spiritual warfare, and he knew he was every bit as powerful right there in prison as he could be out on the field through praying in the Spirit, through sending out the letters, yes, but through the utterance of the Word of God. This is how our spiritual battle is best engaged. Always has been, always will be. That utterance may be given to us in the opening of our mouths to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. That's Paul's prayer. May it be our prayer. God, give me bold utterance with my brother. Well, my brother's a pastor, but you know what I'm saying. With my sister, with my mom, who I'm called to honor, but I can't honor because she's not a believer. Honor her and tell her about Jesus. With my friends who don't believe. Acts chapter 4, verse 29. What did the believers pray when, when Peter and John came back to them? Released from prison, they said, Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. You know what they were saying? Engage us in the battle. Help us to fight the good fight. Give us strength to speak your word with boldness. Speaking of speaking... Did you hear about this? This was in the Guardian yesterday. I got to read this to you real quickly, so bear with me for a second here. 500 years after revolutionary printing presses spread news of Martin Luther's radical call for church reform across Europe, technology is again challenging religious tradition in the small German town of Wittenberg. A robot priest that delivers blessings in five languages and beams light from its hands has been unveiled as a part of an exhibition to mark the anniversary of the start of the Reformation. You can't make this stuff up. The robot called Bless You Too is intended to trigger debate about the future of the church and the potential for artificial intelligence. We wanted people to consider if it's indeed possible to be blessed by a machine. Or if a human being is needed, Stephen Krebs of the Protestant Church in Hess and Nassau said, he's behind the initiative and he told this to the Guardian, the robot has a touchscreen chest, two arms and a head. For the past ten days it has offered blessings and a choice of German, English, French, Spanish or Polish. Worshippers can choose between a male or a female voice. The robot raises its arms, flashes its lights and recites a biblical verse and says, God bless you and protect you. I'm not kidding! And then it says a backup robot is available in case of breakdown. Really? Now, if their intention was to spark spiritual debate, oh, they sparked me. And what about this one? Also from yesterday, MIT's TechReview.com had an article. This caught my attention right away. How to save your digital soul. 
Did any of you see this? How to save your digital soul. For the past three years, Nickel Jane has been working on Obin, the startup company he co-founded in Leeds. It's building technology that uses a single image and an audio clip to automate the construction of what are sort of like digital souls, that is, avatars that look and sound a lot like anyone and can be made to speak or sing anything. This thing is creepy. What they showed in the article online was a picture of the founder of the company and his avatar. And his avatar looks just like him, except it's bald, because they're still having a problem with hair, I guess. So my avatar would be easy to make. But it's, it's this avatar that's just sitting there and, and looks around and speaks and, and says whatever he wants it to say and looks just like him. And they think that this might be a cutting-edge digital soul. Says, of course, it won't really be you or Beyonce or Michael Jackson or whomever an open avatar depicts, but it could be a decent, potentially fun approximation that's useful for all kinds of things. Maybe like Jane, you want a virtual you to read stories to your kids when you can't be there in person. I thought this is brilliant. When Cheryl and I go to Israel, we'll just get an open avatar to read to the kids at night. Robots giving blessings. Avatars that are digital souls. It blew my mind. That article went on and said, if digital copies like Obens are any good, they will raise questions about what should happen to your digital self over time. If you die, should an existing avatar of you be retained? Is it disturbing if others use digital breadcrumbs that you left behind to, in a sense, recreate your digital self? Did you see in... um, uh, it wasn't The Force Awakens, it was the other Star Wars recent movie that Princess Leia was in there. And the whole thing was a digital reconstruction of her. And uh, Grand Mar- Moff Tarkin is another character that's in Star Wars, and, and he's in, I believe it was The Force Awakens. But he's been dead, it's Christopher Lee, he's been dead for years, and so they did a digital reconstruction of him and put it on the silver screen. What's the big deal, Rick? Listen, Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, I bring this all up to you because I I fear that our world, and this is part of our spiritual battle, this is the battle we're fighting for the souls of people. Our world is losing its soul. People are losing their identity to things like avatars and bitmojis and, and, and all kinds of ways that we can represent ourselves, even hiding behind, I've mentioned Facebook, I'm not going to Facebook rant tonight, I'll let you off the hook on that one, but hiding behind the computer to present that digital self, and all the while people's souls are dying. And the call of the church is exactly today what it was 2,000 years ago. God, give us utterance to the gospel. Real life, person to person, flesh and blood, but fighting spiritual battles. Give us utterance. I mean, would we seriously present a digital bride to the Lamb at the marriage feast? Would we employ robo-priests in the Millennial Kingdom? See, all this technology that right now is having the impact of stealing away and focusing people down on what is not real. On the other hand, 
We have the Word of God telling us tonight what is real. And it is the spiritual battle that is going on and raging all around us. And we're seeing it come out in the world. Our Savior is still calling on actual voices to stand firm. He is still calling on human beings to fight the spiritual battle for other human beings in an increasingly increasingly lost world. And so as Paul prayed, give me utterance, so may we pray, Lord, give me voice to the lost around me. Make me bold to proclaim. I'll tell you what, every single person you tell about Jesus, you are engaged in front lines spiritual warfare. Do we fight for our own holiness? Of course we do. But rather than engaging in the warfare of the self, we are engaged in the warfare for the lost. By the way, did Paul's prayer request here in verse 19 work? That utterance may be given to him in the opening of his mouth? Well, I'll let Paul answer that himself. 2 Timothy 4.17, he said, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. Lord, give me utterance. And at the end of his life, when Paul was about to go, he knew that God had given him the very utterance he had prayed for. And in the gospel proclaiming ministry of Paul, man, it is still reverberating around the world today. Because he opened his mouth. Verse 21, But that you may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother, the faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. And again, Paul repeats his letter to Colossae right here. It's almost the exact same words, very close to it, of what he said to the church in Colossae. I'm going to send Tychicus to you. He'll answer questions. He'll let you know what's going on with us. Colossians 4.7 Tychicus, we mention again because he's the courier of at least three of Paul's letter, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, and Philemon. He was the courier. He's vital. When we talk about Paul and the warfare in which Paul was engaged and what Paul did and the letters that Paul wrote and the influence and impact that, that the apostle has had on the church, what about Tychicus? Because if he didn't follow through as a courier... We wouldn't be sitting here reading Ephesians tonight. He had an important role to play. You might not be a Paul, but can you be a Tychicus? Can you just deliver the Word? It's part of the spiritual battle. Well, the Apostle finally concludes the letter in verse 23. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith. Note that, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You might know here at the end of Ephesians, no names, no special greetings. The letter, it just goes out to Ephesus and beyond. That's where we began this letter, is recognizing this letter was bigger than to one church. goes on to Asia. goes on into the age. But note that he says, love with faith. Technically, in the Greek, love accompanied by faith. This is not just any old love. This is not just the namby-pamby cultural love that people talk about today. This is love accompanied by faith. That is faith of, by, for, and through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's real love. 
And that's the love Paul calls out here. And in verse 24 he says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Incorruptible? Pure. Imperishable. Immortal. We might even say heavenly. That's the love that we are called to. Now i got one last thing I want to tell you. We're going to come back and consider final armaments out of chapter 6 on Sunday, but we're going to finish the letter tonight with one question. Are the spiritual pictures that we began with and ended with tonight, are the spiritual pictures compatible? And what do you mean? The marital portrait and gearing up for war. Are those compatible? I mean, how, how does that work? Revelation 19, verse 8. It was given to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Revelation 19, 14, just a little later on. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. This is a fighting bride. This is a fighting bride. And my friends, there is still some fight in her left. And we are called as the bride of Christ to take up the spiritual fight. To fight with the utterance of the gospel. To pray fervently for the lost. To proclaim the truth in a lost and dying and digitized world that is losing itself. And we have we have truth. So let's bring it as the bride. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, You've given me a lot to chew on and think about. I pray that we all will. That we will pour over these things and think about them more. That we'll continue to consider. We pray, Lord, for Your blessing for the entire Bridge Fellowship as we approach the armaments and the gear that we're going to talk about with Your permission, Your will, Father, on Sunday. I ask that we be prepared for that and hearts ready. I pray, Father, for spiritual revelation. That we would stop dismissing, Lord, the spiritual fight. That we would not be ignorant of the devil's schemes, nor would we ignore what's going on around us. Father, I pray that You would make us brave for the battle knowing that we stand behind You, that You are our strength, that You are our might, that in You is truth, that Your Word is a sword, Lord. Teach us to wield it properly. And help us, Father, to be a people that are not of those who shrink back to the destruction of the soul. Oh, Father, help us to press on to fight strong in the Lord and in Your might. May we be a presentable bride, but a tough and a fighting bride for the lost of this world. We just pray for eyes wide open. Engage us, Father. Engage us for the marriage and engage us in the battle. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.